0: Today is April fourteenth, two 2015, and my guest is Scott Sumner of Bentley University, and he is also the director of the Center for Monetary Policy at George Mason University's Bercada Center. He blogs at Money Illusion and at EconLog, which, like EconTalk, is part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. Scott, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks for
1: inviting me, Russ.
0: So we have a few topics I hope to get to today, but I want to start with one of your favorite themes, which I'll introduce uh, with an observation of Nobel laureate Robert Schiller's, In a recent interview, he referred to what he called uh, a puzzle, puzzle of our time, that, that and that puzzle is, why is there so little investment, either public or private, but he mentioned private in particular, uh, given how low interest rates are, because we think low interest rates should stimulate investment, and yet investment seems to be uh, very stagnant and very low. So that seems to be a puzzle on his, uh, in his eyes. But in your eyes, and I would add in mine, uh, it isn't a puzzle. So what's, what mistake is he making?
1: Okay, he's doing what I call reasoning from a price change. And let me start off with an analogy from just basic supply and demand. Uh, might make it easier to follow. So suppose I told you that uh, I had a crystal ball and I knew that next year oil prices were going to be much higher than this year. Could you predict what the implications would be for consumption? oil consumption from that fact. Now, a lot of people I talk to think, oh, economics easy. tells us that if prices are high, people will consume less. But that's actually not the prediction of the supply and demand model. It depends on what causes the price to rise. So if oil prices are high because OPEC cuts production, then yes, people will consume less. However, if oil prices are high because demand shifts out, maybe the global economy is booming, then the higher oil prices will be accompanied by higher consumption. So it really depends on whether the supply or the demand curve shifts before you interpret what the impact of a price change is in general. It's just a common fallacy you see in the news media all the time. Now here with Schiller's example, he was sort of assuming that the reason for the, say, a low interest rates was something like maybe an easy money policy by the Fed. And if that was the cause, you might expect more investment to occur. But it's equally likely, and I would argue even more likely, that the cause of the low interest rates was a shift in the demand schedule. That is, uh, firms were engaging in less investment, and as a result, there was less demand for credit, so interest rates are low, and there's less investment occurring in the economy. And that's perfectly consistent with supply and demand. Now, even worse, In some cases, when people reason from a price change, they're usually right because they've identified which curve shifts most often. Um, In this case, though, he got it exactly wrong. Typically, during low interest rate periods, investment is low, and during high interest rate periods, investment is high, and the reason for that is interest rates are strongly pro-cyclical. They go with the business cycle. So typically, in a recession, interest rates are very low, and in a boom period, interest rates are higher. And of course, investment goes with the business cycle as well. So there's nothing surprising about low interest rates being accompanied by low levels of investment. It's what we usually observe in the economy. So
0: I, I want to come back to that. But before, I want to come back to this particular example of interest rates, but I want to, I want to go back to your original point first, which is mm-hmm. about supply and demand. And so mm-hmm. you know, I taught uh, microeconomics for about 30 years. And I would always spend um, a number of classes, and and there's there's quite a bit of material in my uh, online resource on supply and demand, which we'll put a link up to, where I talk about different fallacies and mistakes that people make when using supply and demand. This is one of my favorites. Um, It's to confuse a shift along a demand curve with the shift in the curve itself. This is a classic Mm -hmm. – Principles or intermediate micro or price theory kind of kind of problem. So, the example I use with my students would be the following. I'm not going to answer it, and we'll see if uh, you can you can answer it in the comments okay. if you want. Scott, you're not allowed to answer it either, okay?
1: Oh, okay. So, here,
0: here's the question: Suppose if you see a new housing development that's that's being built near your neighborhood, uh, should that depress you? Uh, it it seems like it should, wouldn't it? Because it's an increase in supply. It would seem that would be followed by a reduction in prices, and that would mean that your house is going to be worth less than than it would otherwise be worth because this new competition has come onto the market. So you have this piece of information. The information is is that – and by the way, what I just said, if you look at it in the transcript, uh, part of that is going to be true and false, and some of it is confusing, and some will be true some of the time. So I'm going to restate it now to make it a little more clear. If you see a new housing development going up uh, and you're worried about the value of your own home, should this information, that there's this new housing, should that make you happy or sad? And I think um, if you can answer that correctly, you understand something, I think, subtle about supply and demand. I want to give one other example. Uh, I used to get called by people in the media. They don't call me anymore because they're smart, but... Uh, they used to ask me what I thought about some recent result in the uh, value of the dollar, change in yeah. the value of the dollar. And they'd say, well, the dollar's rising or the dollar's falling. Is this good or bad for, you know, what, what's the implication for the economy? And I would always say, I have no idea, <laughs> which is not a good answer if you want to get quoted. They, they were looking for something um, dramatic. But I'd always say it that if you don't know the cause, of the uh, appreciation or depreciation of the currency, how would you have any idea of what the implications are for the U.S. economy? And uh, this, this particular error of reasoning for a price change to me gets made constantly, and probably every day in the media somewhere, people are opining about a change in the price of some currency. And yeah. to me, it's, uh, it's, it's a perfect example of your, uh, your mistake.
1: Let me give your uh, listeners a, a perfect example. In the late 90s, the dollar strengthened because there was more demand for U.S. assets because we had a high-tech boom, okay? That was a bullish uh, sign for the economy. In late 2008, the dollar strengthened because monetary policy in the U.S. was too contractionary, in my view, uh, which is also controversial. But anyway, that sort of strengthening, if it's due to tight money, is actually a bearish symbol for the economy. So it, it completely depends why the currency is... Strengthening. Same thing weakening. A currency can weaken because you're suffering economic collapse, or it can weaken due to an expansionary monetary policy like in Europe recently, which might be expected to boost growth in Europe. Right. So, yeah, it's exactly right. It depends why the currency is changing. And that and interest rates are the two most common examples of where even professional economists tend to reason for price changes.
0: So let's go back to interest rates. Um, <clears throat> And uh, I wish Robert Schiller were here. Uh, what what you're suggesting, because you may have a defense, I can't imagine it, but that's maybe a limitation of my imagination, um, but what you're effectively arguing is that the reason that interest rates are low is not because of an expansion of credit, but because of a contraction in a reduction in demand. That is, at every interest rate, people want to invest less than they did before, and therefore, that desire to invest less, the demand curve shifts in and to the, down and to the left, and the mm-hmm. equilibrium interest rate falls, and the total amount of investment falls. And that's the end of the story, by the way. So there's the other mistake people make is they say, oh, but if interest rates are low, that pushes out demand, and we go, interest rates go
1: back up. But yeah, that there's it a new, an endless circle.
0: Yeah, which is not the way yeah. it works. It, there's a new yeah. equilibrium interest rate given this, the lesser desire that people have at every interest rate. To invest, it takes a lower interest rate to clear the market than it did before. Why do you think uh, there's a decrease in demand, and why are you content ruling out an expansion of of credit? Because I think a lot of people – one thing maybe the chiller would say is there's been a huge expansion of credit. And I guess another way to answer this question would be to ask the question is that are you confident that investment is lower? Because that would be the sign that the equilibrium has moved down to the left and not uh, down to the
1: right. Yeah, and so um, that's obviously kind of a complicated question. I think there's likely more than one factor today, but if we sort of take it back from a few years, it's pretty clear what was going on in 2008, and 10. During that period when interest rates fell sharply close to zero, it was really weakness in the economy that was the main reason. So you had interest rates falling because nominal growth, nominal GDP growth was extremely low, even negative in 2009. And typically, when that occurs and you have a deep recession and falling inflation, you get lower interest rates. The same thing happened in the 1930s, for instance. But that's not necessarily the explanation for today. And I think that what's going on now is also reflecting sort of long-run global forces having to do with savings investment, which in my view are perhaps permanently or semi-permanently lowering the normal rate of interest in the economy. Uh, That is... the Slowing uh, population growth, the aging population and so on is leading to less investment. Meanwhile, you have the rise of Asia, which is, uh, includes a lot of very high-saving countries. And so um, with these demographic changes, the savings investment imbalance, and this is something that Ben Bernanke did talk about, is probably lowering the normal interest rate even when the economy is not severely depressed um, and I would say today the economy is actually not all that depressed. Although it, you know, it depends how you measure and how, which variables you look at. But certainly not as depressed as it was five years ago. Oh, that's for so true. the initial fall was the the recession, and but now I think we're also seeing the impact of longer term forces. I don't think it's due to what would be called an easy money policy, because if that were occurring, we'd see rising inflation, and we just don't see that. Well,
0: so. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get you to clarify some of that because that's what you Mm -hmm. just said. You said it was a complicated question Mm -hmm. and you gave a I'd say a semi-complicated answer. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, One of the lessons as I was preparing for this interview as I was thinking about the different things I wanted to ask you about is that uh, it is remarkable to me how complicated macroeconomics is generally Mm -hmm. in that there are many many factors changing at once and we are all um farmers. We're all picking cherries. We're all harvesters. We all pick cherries and we pick the things that seem plausible to us, the stories or narratives that seem to make sense to us, and we leave out everything else. And uh, you just made a list of a, a bunch of factors. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't think carefully while you were talking, but I, I suspect they don't all go in the same direction. Some do and some don't. If we had the, all the factors we've mentioned so far. And then the question is, you know, what, are the, what are the magnitudes? So to try to hone in, uh, which of course we can't measure uh, those magnitudes, but uh, in terms of the impact of each separate variable. But let's, let's try to hone in on, on some of these, these different factors. So you said, well, interest rates were low in, say, 2008 to 2011 because the economy wasn't doing very well, which mm-hmm. means people are pessimistic about the future – they're not eager to invest, and that means that uh, people are not eager to borrow money, and therefore you don't get very much for your money when you try to lend it. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's would be the, the argument. But then the economy bounced back mm-hmm. uh, quite a bit. As you said, you can debate how healthy it is right now. Why didn't interest rates go up? They haven't budged. They haven't budged. Uh, I, I guess it depends how you define interest rates, but the – this, the short term interest rate is still very, very, by historical standards, very low. Why didn't they go back up?
1: Yeah, and so it might help here to think about the ways economists approach the question. We sort of partition it into a couple different questions. One way we break it down is the distinction between the real and the nominal interest rate, where the nominal rate includes an inflation premium or adjustment. So, back in the 1970s, when interest rates were very high, it was partly due to the high inflation that occurred.
0: Those were high. Those were high nominal rates. Nominal term, Meaning right, what we real. actually
1: observe, and real is corrected for inflation. So, go ahead. Right. And um, so you can subtract out inflation from the nominal to get the real. Now, of course, in recent years, inflation has been fairly low. So that's one of the reasons that nominal rates are much lower than in earlier decades. But it's not the only reason. So the real interest rate has also fallen quite a bit. And that, I think, is the bigger puzzle because economists used to think real interest rates were fairly stable at maybe around 2 or 3% yep. on government bonds. And, and that's also fallen. So now when you look at the real interest rate, how do you explain that? And again, economists sort of partition it into two questions, a short run and a long run. They tend to think that in the short run, the Fed has some maneuverability to raise and lower uh, real interest rates through monetary policy, but not as much flexibility as you might think because there's costs of doing so. If you have an expansionary policy, you can temporarily lower real interest rates, but at a cost of higher inflation. If you have a a contractionary policy, you can raise interest rates in the short run. But I would emphasize that these effects tend to be fairly short-term, and and the long-term effects eventually kick in, and you get going the other way. So in the 1960s, we had an easy money policy, but after a while, interest rates actually started rising because of the higher inflation. Now, a lot of people think we have a really easy money policy today, But I would argue that's kind of misleading because we're not seeing any of the macroeconomic indicators that would support that contention. That is, we're not seeing inflation going up. We're not seeing any sort of um, overheating in the economy that you would associate with monetary stimulus. So I think what's really going on is, is that monetary policy isn't as expansionary as it looks. It's more a defensive mechanism of the Fed injecting a lot of reserves into the banking system and the banks just sit on them because interest rates are zero. But it's not having any stimulative effect. So I don't really think monetary policy is the factor that's holding down interest rates. If it were, I think you'd be seeing higher inflation coming along and we're just not seeing that. Nor are we seeing forecasts of higher inflation going forward. So I'm just left with then back to classical economics, supply and demand. Um, you know, we apply supply and demand to the um, credit markets through a savings and investment schedule. More savings will lower interest rates, more investment will raise interest rates. And we seem to be going to a global economy where there's a lot of savings going on and not as much investment as we're used to. And as a result, those those shifts in those schedules are pushing interest rates lower until they can find a new equilibrium. Okay,
0: I'm going to come back to this I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to come back mm-hmm. to the point about um, savings versus investment because I think that's that's an important point. But I, I just want to uh, backtrack a bit and talk a little bit about real interest rates because I think you said something that might have confused some listeners. Mm-hmm. You said historically economists used – at least generally believed, and I think this is certainly true, that the, the real rate of interest, the productivity of the economy as a whole is 2 to 3 percent. And then you said, well, you know, government treasury rates are about you know, in that area. But I think that's a little bit misleading. I think – because what you're really saying, the government rates – the government sets an interest rate that will allow it to be in the market and effectively borrow. Mm-hmm. But it's responding to the overall – the more general rate in the economy as a whole, which is a measure of the productivity of the economy. So mm-hmm. when we say 2 to 3%, we usually believe that if you can put some money aside, there's usually something – an opportunity out there that'll let it grow at two to three percent which would allow you to compensate your lender uh, for the risk they took and and that some things will grow a lot faster than two to three percent some things will fail and be mistakes but on average the productivity of the economy is what allows there to be a positive interest rate right is that a, a good way to think about it
1: yeah um I wouldn't say it necessarily has to be just productivity it's also about just Economic growth in general. So you can have like population growth. Um, Australia typically is the highest population growth of the developed countries and it's the highest interest rates of the developed countries. And, you know, a lot of people move to Australia. They have to borrow money to build homes there, to live there. And so that creates a demand for credit and uh, supports a higher interest rate. Um, if you think about the US, for instance, just think about the housing market. We're producing so many fewer houses than we used to. And all those houses we were building uh, prior to the Great Recession, and even going back in the 90s and 80s, someone had to save the money to lend to people uh, for mortgages to buy those homes, right? Well, now if we're building far fewer houses, then there's much less need for savings to support that activity, but if people are trying to save just as much, that savings just sort of floods into the credit markets and puts downward pressure on interest rates. So that would be maybe one concrete example I could give you of the forces pushing interest rates yeah, lower. There's just a exactly. lot less housing construction going on.
0: And that, that again, we're talking about real interest rates, the mm-hmm. correct after infla- after correcting for what, and to be careful, we, we should say expected inflation, if I'm going to lend you $1,000, uh, I'm going to lend you $100, and I expect to get back $103, and I'm pretty sure you're going to pay me back. So I asked for $103. If inflation is going to be positive over that year, uh, the year before you pay me back, I want more than 103 because otherwise I end up with less money in my, in my pocket in terms of its purchasing power than when I started. So that's why uh, nominal interest rates are affected by expected inflation. Of course, we don't really know what expected inflation is. We have actual inflation, and we use, often use that to cr- to adjust nominal interest rates and call the result a real interest rate. But it's not quite kosher, right? It's a little bit. It's a little slip there. Yeah.
1: Well, let me let me just also clarify one point. When you said you want to uh, get a certain amount back to compensate you for inflation and to earn a real rate of return and so on. The question of what you want and the question of what you're willing to accept <laughs> yes. are two radically different things that we've to, And what you have
0: to accept is, yeah.
1: So if people are trying to save a lot and there's not a lot of investment activity going on in the developed world, and all this savings floods into the market, you, you could easily get interest rates going below zero as long as people are willing to accept that rather than the alternative. So they may be so anxious to save that they'll accept those low interest rates because they simply don't see any good alternative. Now, economists also used to believe that nominal rates could not fall below zero because everybody could hold cash as an alternative.
0: The alternative is to put it in your mattress.
1: Right, and you can always get zero rate of return on cash, risk-free. But now we've even found that isn't quite right. Um, Interest rates have gone slightly negative in Europe, and it seems like the explanation is that uh, people... Don't really like to hoard lots of cash, hold huge amounts of cash. So institutions in Europe that need to park a billion dollars somewhere, um, they would rather take a slightly negative interest rate than to try to accumulate that much cash somewhere. Well, and so that's been a little bit of a good. surprise for us to see the rates go slightly negative. Now we still believe they can't go very far negative because at some point people would switch over to, to just holding currency and putting it in safety deposit boxes, but we do see um a, a quite a willingness to tolerate low interest rates especially in Europe and Japan today
0: yeah, i had a great uncle who uh when he traveled would carry money in um grocery bags mm-hmm. uh i did not find that appealing uh, as a tra- <laughs> as a young person i remember looking at that and thinking that's nuts uh, and similarly if you if you have say a few thousand dollars uh you're willing to pay to have somebody hold on to them in safety rather than leaving in your house where someone might stumble upon it and uh, take it away from you. So we generally are willing to pay some sort of premium for the security of of a bank's uh system, the bank's the banking system whereas uh, the mattress isn't really not it's not risk free, right? It's got right. uh the risk of theft and um that, that's that's definitely part of it.
1: Right. And so just to sort of summarize all this If we break down the mystery of low interest rates into two parts, the the nominal and the real, we can say that one part of it is easy to explain. We understand that inflation is a lot lower. Expected inflation is very low. We understand how this has been accomplished through better monetary policy since the 70s. And because we've got low inflation, we can expect lower nominal rates. The real mystery, as you indicated, is with the real interest rate, that's also lower than normal, and that doesn't seem to be as easy to explain and and that's where I've suggested these global forces of savings investment uh, putting downward pressure on. Um, but you know there's alternative explanations. Um, uh, ben Bernanke has a new article that he refers to a, a decline in the the risk premium. so people are willing to accept lower rates than they used to on like ten year treasury bonds because they view them as being safer than in the 1970s. In the 70s, they had to worry a lot about inflation risk. So, um, the, the, and also, they're the one safe asset in a world that's you know, full of other types of risk, like you know, stock market and housing market fluctuations. So if you own treasury bonds, uh, when everything else is going down, like in 2008 and nine, treasury bonds are rising in value. So that makes them very attractive as a way of uh, hedging risk. And so for all of these reasons, people seem to be willing to accept lower rates of return on treasury bonds than in the past. As I say, in the 1970s, they were viewed as a very risky investment to make because of the you know, high inflation, high interest rates, and so on.
0: So your answer right now, which I'm going to challenge, your answer is that um, there's, a, there's a lot of savings, which is pushing down rates. Um, and there's also the possibility, which I don't, I don't agree with either. Of the, I have a problem with both these parts of the answer. So one part of the answer answer is that there's a lot of global savings, and the second part of the answer is there's a lot of um, there's a lot of, of optimism about the future. He didn't literally say this, but that's part of the reason potentially that the that the uh, demand schedule for investment might be shifted in. It's that. Population growth is down. Opportunities in the future don't look as good as they used to. So here's the problem I have with it. There are two problems with it. First of all, with if if the savings glut, so-called savings glut. I hate that phrase. I don't think you like it either. But the increase in the, the, the enormous amounts of savings going on around the world, looking for a return. Uh, if the if that was the reason that that nominal interest rates were low, we'd expect there to be enormous amounts of investing going on as we slide down the. Demand schedule as the as the as the credit pours into the market, the opportunities to, to use money pour into the market. Mm-hmm. That should result in lower nominal interest rates and lots of investing. We don't see. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. I don't think the the quantity of investing is up at all. I, again, I, mean, I didn't
1: look it into. Yeah, it. you're 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 right on that. And um, <clears throat> let me. Uh, it, it's always a little hard to explain these things uh, verbally because it, I always think in terms of graphs. Um, and Just it's hard draw, to do that verbally, but,
0: away, but, but we, if you, if all you, <laughs> um,
1: if your listeners picture like a supply and demand diagram, but make the supply curve, a savings schedule and make the demand curve, the investment. So when interest rates go down, there's more demand for credit for investment purposes. So it's like a demand curve. Now, what's really going on in my view is both of these schedules are shifting and the net effect is we're probably ending up with a little bit less investment and savings than before, but at much lower interest rates. Now, how could that occur? Well, if you draw it on a piece of paper and if you shift that savings line to the right a little bit, but shift the investment line to the left by a larger amount, both of those shifts will put downward pressure on interest rates. But the net effect is on, on for there quant- to be the net lower
0: – The net effect on quantity – you, you,
1: You still have to go to an equilibrium point where the savings and investment schedules cross each other. And so this is what I think causes confusions when you just describe the process in words. If I say a savings glut, it sounds to most listeners like, oh, there's more savings than there is investment. No, in equilibrium, actually, savings will equal investment, as economists define these terms. But what has to happen is interest rates have to fall so low in order for that equilibrium to occur, okay? Um, just like, uh, you know, in a supply and demand diagram, if there's a huge oil discovery, supply will shift to the right, but you, you don't have more oil than you are consuming, what'll happen is the price will fall low enough until people will use that extra oil and- um, Moving down that demand curve if well, that did not shift. down show. the demand curve, now in this case, I think the bigger effect is a shift in the investment schedule inward. Notice that the first country to hit low interest rates was Japan. They're kind of the opposite of Australia. They're a zero population growth country, very little demand for new housing and so on, in fact, falling population. And they were the first to uh, hit the zero interest rate situation, and I think it's partly because there's just not a lot of good investment opportunities in a country whose population is falling fairly rapidly. So, um, if you think of the investment schedule as shifting to the left, that puts, you move down along that savings curve, there's actually less quantity of savings and there's less actual um, investment occurring as well. But I think the savings schedule has also moved a little bit to the right. Um, the net effect may still be for there to be less savings and investment. but. Uh, the high propensity to save in Asia, which is a rising part of the global economy, I think is an issue here, and it, it probably was one factor undergirding the U.S. housing boom during the uh, you know early two thousands. A lot of f- funds flowed into the U.S. market and, and financed mortgages and so on. And you know, people even then, before the recession, were talking about the unusually low interest rates, given that the economy was booming. Remember, I think it was Greenspan that talked about a savings glut, or conundrum, that's right, a conundrum of low interest rates. And that was even before the Great Recession. So I think we've seen this process beginning to play out over a number of years, but since the recession, it's become much more noticeable.
0: Well, one, one um, I'm pretty sure there's a three-letter f- word that we have not spoken much about, if at all, which is the Fed. Mm-hmm. And we are going to come to the Fed, but I think a lot of people tend to want to blame the Fed uh, or or honor the Fed for changes in interest rates. We're, we're going to come to that, but I'm, I'm just telling listeners. And I also want to warn listeners that when you said a minute ago that lower interest rates should get more investment, you were talking about moving along a fixed demand curve. Uh, mm-hmm. So you weren't making the fallacy of reasoning from a price change, which you had decried earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. But as an economist, you just tend to take it as assumed as given when you say that, that you were talking about a fixed curve and everything else held constant. Um, I, I take the point about Japan. I want to I want to come to the United States, and I want to raise uh, a puzzle to that uh, story you just told, which is the following. Mm-hmm. We both talked about how historically interest rates have been about three percent real, mm-hmm. and usually people say two percent of that. One percent's been population growth. So as you point out, if 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 the only, if your economy is pretty stagnant but you have population growth, you can have positive interest rates. Because there's more stuff going on, more activity. Uh, you can expand your, your business just because there are more people. But 2% of the three is 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 growth, is productivity and technology and other things that are changing. So underneath all of this conversation so far, we've ignored an issue that has gotten a lot of attention lately, which is uh, – and we've talked about it here at kind EconTalk of a number of times, which is uh, sec- so-called secular stagnation. It's a bad phrase, by the way. Secular uh, sometimes means uh, non-religious, but here it means over time, uh, Mm -hmm. which is confusing. But all all it means really is that uh, there's not much growth going on. We have a stagnant economy supposedly. So Mm -hmm. here's my problem with that story. I look at a part of the country, California, that I visit in the summer, and there's just this unbelievable explosion of creativity there. And it's not just hypothetical. People are doing stuff, engineering things, uh, a lot of it's software, obviously, but there are a, there's a lot of enormous opportunities for investment, and a lot of uh, wealthy people, in the form of venture capital, are investing, making bets, putting, taking a risk, and investing in these firms. Uh, people are constantly no one's sitting around saying, "Well. There's no point in thinking about the future because the population growth is low in America. People are not; they don't think that way. They're they're it's going like gangbusters, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of investment going on in that part of the economy, the the tech high tech so called high tech uh, sector in Silicon Valley. How do you reconcile that fact with this this story that you hear from other economists that? Well, just every it's not gonna be like it used to be when we had a lot of growth, it's gonna be a sluggish we've thought of all the good ideas for a while. You know, this is an idea this is a theme. Tyler Cowan is somewhat associated with this, so is Robert Gordon at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people who've said, you know, the, the glory days of the sixties and even some of the seventies and eighties, they're over. We just have to get used to this sluggish economy. And I look at Silicon Valley and I think, what the heck are they talking about? Is it everything else is negative, and that's the only place where there's positive growth? Because that place is going crazy.
1: Right, and so that raises uh, – and I've puzzled about this. Um, I, I don't have uh, you know, any great answers, but I'll speculate a little bit on it anyway. Um, one thing that I've noticed is that even though rates of return on government bonds are extremely low, it sort of seems like rates of return on riskier forms of capital are still pretty good. So investors in the stock market who have invested in these high-tech companies have been doing well. Of course, that doesn't mean that you know ex-ante, before the fact, they knew they were going to earn high rates of return. <coughs> but um, anyway, they've done pretty well. And then you've got the situation where uh, government bonds are paying almost nothing as an interest rate. So investors are earning a pretty good rate of return on these uh, higher-risk investments uh, like high-tech companies. And I'm wondering, well, what's different from, say, the 1960s? Um, If you think of the old economy that produced steel and cars and home appliances and things like that, if one company was making large profits, making, say, refrigerators, lots of other companies would start up um, essentially copying what they are doing and, and making refrigerators and hiring workers and putting together capital to make factories and so on. So it's a very highly competitive uh, economy in that sense. A lot of the companies we see now in Silicon Valley that make large profits, it's not obvious how outside competitors would jump in and copy uh, you know eBay or Facebook or Google or you know what I mean because a lot of these companies are uh, basically based on certain force of, interna- of sorry intellectual property and This is protected by patents and copyrights and so on. So what you seem to have is sort of two parts of the economy, this thriving part, uh, high-tech firms in places like Silicon Valley, but then a lot of the rest of the economy seems to be fairly sluggish and doesn't seem to be able to participate in that real high-charge growth that you're talking about in places like California. And it doesn't seem like those firms use enough capital to put much upward pressure on interest rates. Another thing that's sort of interesting about these new firms is they often have relatively small amounts of capital, of physical capital and relatively small number of employees. So in stock market capitalization, they're very, very large, they're having a big effect on the high tech sector, but they don't really require the enormous quantities of capital that the older economy used to need to manufacture basic items and um, So it seems like the difference in the nature of the new economy might be one reason why growth in one area isn't sort of spilling over to the macro variables in the way that you might expect and as occurred in earlier decades. But that's just speculation on my part.
0: Well, that's interesting, though, and I think it it forces you to think about how important these things are. One of the things that it also forces you to remember, which I meant to bring up earlier, is my Austrian side, is that... We're talking about the interest rate as if there's a single rate. And, of course, there's not. There's short-term rates, long-term rates. There's different kinds of risk associated with different kinds of savings and investment. And uh, you make an excellent point that what's really been – what's really different um, now compared to, say, 10 years ago or 20, 20, 30 years ago, there's two things that are different. One is, as you pointed out, inflation's lower. So there's no inflation premium right now built into the, into the nominal interest rate because people aren't worried about it. But the second factor is that it's the risk-free rate that's low. It's the government bonds or, or, you know, I don't know what the equivalent. There isn't an equivalent corporate bond, but uh, it's that that's low. And so, as as you point out, if you invest in certain types of sectors of the economy or even if you just hold the S&P 500, you've made a lot of money over the last few years by putting money aside, a huge amount of money, the returns are extremely high what 's low is the short term risk free rate and uh, maybe we shouldn 't be so worried or interested in that maybe that 's we 're spending t- too much time thinking and puzzling over that, uh, and we should spend uh, you know, I, although having said that i 'm not sure that the stock market returns are very comforting either, but the overall economy is growing, parts of it are growing faster than others. And uh, maybe there's, it's not such an important or, or a puzzling phenomenon that, that risk-free rates are low.
1: Yeah, and I could add one other thing. Someone could point out that the stock market returns may not be expected to continue at this rate, and you know that's certainly plausible. But we also have other indicators, like you know the rate of corporate profits is pretty good, and people have been commenting recently on how a greater and greater share of um, corporate net worth is sort of in the intangible area, things that are not visible. Like it used to be more of the value of a corporation was in its actual physical buildings and factories and so on. But it's more and more in the intangible area today. And that also feeds into this idea that it may be related to intellectual property protections. It may be hard to compete away those earnings. And so even though you do observe existing firms making pretty good profits, at the margin, New firms entering may not be able to expect to earn nearly as high a return, and therefore um, you're not getting the investment that you normally would have expected when the corporate sector is doing so well.
0: Well, I'm not not sure. Let let me push back on part of that because that's the part that caught my ear, and I didn't didn't agree with it. So here's the part I like. The part I agree with you with is that if you can make a slightly better washing machine or a slightly better car the way that we normally saw progress – uh, in the most of the 20th century, was through technology application technology to manufacturing. Uh, a lot of those gains, those maybe have a lot of those have been taken advantage of already. And the future possible improvements there are relatively small, and so are the profit. So is the profitability. You make a you make a market return if you make a good car or a good washing machine, but it's hard to make a killing. And if you did, it would probably be copied fairly quickly. Now let's talk about the non-traditional, the new, so-called new economy. Yes, there's Google and Facebook and all these these iconic firms that make huge amounts of money, and they're protected by uh, intellectual property rights. But there's so much possibility here for for entry. You're not going to enter and grow into a, a you know an, a firm that employs two hundred fifty thousand people, like a large manufacturer used to make, or five hundred thousand people, or even a million people. You're going to be small. But you're going to have a lot of capital. It's going to be human capital. It's not tangible. It can't be measured. But your, your, your productivity of your company, what allows you to, to get into the market and, and earn money, is really creative people coming up with a novel way to use a smartphone or, or something related to the web. And it seems to me the potential of that right now is, is just – it's enormous. It's not like it's hard to enter at all. People are doing it – teenagers are doing it, and they do it well. Some
1: some people are good at it. Yeah. So yeah. Let Not me all of them. let me put it this way. <laughs> I, I sort of I mean I, I agree with you on one level, but I would say that the a couple of things. The amount of capital that they're um, <clears throat> you know using in this process is often quite a bit less. So let let's say that you we've got two people that observe Google's enormous profitability. One of them is the CEO of U.S. Steel, and the other is a, a student at Stanford. Okay. okay, And which of those two is going to say, oh, we should set up a new division sort of like Google so we can get in on those profits? The CEO of U.S. Steel is going to be probably very fatalistic, like, well, yeah, they're making a lot of money, but I have no idea how they did it. So even if I borrow a lot of money and set up a big um, you know, research center in Silicon Valley, what expectation do I have that I'll make as much as Google? On the other hand, the student at Stanford might have some ideas that uh, he or she could you know, play out in a startup firm. But that sort of investment often doesn't actually require that much capital. So I think what's happening, it's it's happening in sort of a a segment of our economy, the people with those skills, the creativity skills necessary to create those new firms. Uh, And and they're doing very well, and they're pushing a lot of innovation, but it's not really having quite the macroeconomic uh, impact that the broader industrial booms had in the earlier parts of the 20th century that, that really brought in the whole economy into the process, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if that I, makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, no it but does. But there's again there's a part that's not quite, I don't think doesn't quite as it's not as persuasive as it might as it might sound. So, you know, in the old days, if I wanted to um you're you're making the point that if I want to start an, a a factory on uh in Red River to make uh cars, I I need a huge amount of money. But if I'm going to be tinkering in my Bedroom with an app that I that I mm-hmm. came up with. I don't need any capital, so so that would argue that the demand for for capital could be relatively low, even though there's a lot of investment going on. The problem with that is is that in the old days, again, we're talking about sort of the the old days, like you know, we we're talking about this, like it's the last five hundred years, really, really talking about nineteen forty five to nineteen sixty five, maybe, sort of the mm-hmm. post war, uh, steady normal somewhat staid economic uh, picture of the post-war era, which was healthy until about maybe 1960-something, and then we started to get inflation, and then we started to get, uh, we get the malaise of the late 70s, and then we got the recovery of the 80s and 90s, et cetera. So we're in a relatively small period of U.S. economic history before the Internet. But in that period, it wasn't like, oh, somebody said, oh, I'm going to start a car company. I'm going to need a lot of money. Most people couldn 't start a car company. It was very hard to enter those markets it's true that there was some competition across manufacturing uh companies, but the way you entered it was it was mainly through i guess there was some expansion due to population growth and and income growth by the way right so there was an increased demand for cars but it wasn't like we saw an explosion of of uh, entrants because they couldn't enter it was too expensive and they weren't trustworthy it's very you know, there were basically very few, zero, maybe one. And it was a niche car uh, in in the late half of the 20th century that bef- that had traditional manufacturing. Exp- I'm thinking about the McLaren or whatever it's called. The the I can't remember the name of it. So I don't think it's the McLaren, but mm-hmm. um, and yet, so so it's not obvious to me the fact that the traditional economic activity was more quote capital intensive, uh, and I would call it three, you know. Brick-and-mortar capital intensive. Most of the capital expansion, I would assume, in the, say, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even 80s, it was things like uh, somebody builds a grocery store on the corner, CVS, Walgreens suddenly comes up with this idea that they can they can make a national um, uh, pharmacy brand. Starbucks comes along, they're building on every corner. These are not giant capital projects, right? Now, it's true mm-hmm. that they're smaller excuse me, that they're larger than than creating an app on an iPhone. Uh, but again, you know, if I'm making an app a serious app, not just a little fool around thing, I've got to hire people. People are expensive. They require, I have to borrow money from those venture, uh, not borrow money, I have to, to give up an ownership stake. Those venture capital firms, they invest a lot of money. It's not a small amount of money. So it's just not obvious to me that this claim that, That because the new economy doesn't hire as many people, doesn't invest as much brick-and-mortar, there's so much more of it. It's not obvious that that doesn't overcome some of the the differences in the physical uh, economy in the old traditional ways.
1: Yeah. um, I I would say, though, even uh, even on the question of entry, uh, even though maybe it was hard for an average person to, say, enter the auto industry – I do think the old manufacturing economy was closer to what economists call perfect competition. For instance, the, the products they sold, the price tended to be fairly closely related to the cost of production. So there was enough competition among the firms that were already in those industries, like, say, a- automobile industry, so that if the car sold for $20,000, it might cost sixteen or 18000 to make, something like that. In the high-tech economy, you have many, many goods for which they sell at a certain price and the cost of manufacturing is almost zero. Now, normally when that is the case, um, you would have just tremendous competition. Firms would jump in at the chance, but in a lot of cases, either there's intellectual property protection, so one firm has a patent on a certain type of software or something, or there's something like, say, network effects where one company – Uh, is dominant because everybody wants to be using the service that others are using. That's sort of the Facebook effect, the eBay effect, and things like that. So um, I think there's something different about the uh, high-tech economy. Um, I'm not sure exactly which of these characteristics is is crucial for what we're talking about, but I don't think it's really quite the same as as the old economy in in terms of uh, uh, competitiveness, if you well, will. I
0: agree. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's probably uh, more Schumpeterian. If you go back and read, yeah. which I haven't in a while, Capitalism, exactly. uh, Socialism and Democracy, in uh, the capitalism part of that book, the first section, he really has some deep and probably very relevant things to today's economy where he talks about he basically says, you know, the goal is not to be like everybody else, the goal is to be, to be a monopolist <laughs> and hope you can sustain that long enough to make some money. And you're right. In a way, you can sustain it longer today than you could in the past, possibly. Um, and again, I don't know if that's anything to worry about, but I just don't, I just don't know if that has anything to do with interest rates. That's all. I'm, I mean, I think these are really deep and important and interesting things, and and there are no answers. There's no obvious answer that's right about what, whether these differences are important. But it's not obvious to me that, that interest rates – real interest rates should be lower in a virtual economy that has more virtual firms and – software development than it has hardware development, that's all.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, uh, to change the topic slightly, I I would also go back to the notion that um, my view, which is a little bit different from many others, is that interest rates mostly reflect market forces over any sort of reasonable period of time. So you know, on a day-to-day basis, the Fed may be setting interest rates, but over any longer period of time, they basically have to be reflecting market forces. If they weren't, uh, you would get an explosion of hyperinflation or deflation. You, the, the economy would become highly unstable. And since we're not seeing that, we have to assume that the place where the Fed seems to be setting interest rates must be relatively close to an equilibrium interest rate. Uh, otherwise, we would be seeing some signs of uh, you know strong disequilibrium in the market, which we're just not seeing in the macroeconomy. So. So something is is causing it that is, in my view, not what would be considered artificial. And a lot of the people I debate on this say, well, interest rates are just being artificially held at this level, and this isn't the correct level, but this is the level where the market has them. And um, no one's been able to convince me that the Fed is a magician that can make interest rates be uh, vastly different from their – equilibrium level and hold them there for many, many years without any sort of inflation or deflation side effects cropping up.
0: Which is unfortunate because I like to blame the Fed, uh, as, <laughs> as many people do. You know, I, one, yeah. of the things, one of the things that disturbs me about the current world, uh, and this is irrational, I suppose, but it bothers me that my children are growing up in a time when the return to setting money aside for the future is close to zero. So when you say to them, "Oh, you know, you could save some money and don't have to buy everything with the money you have," their correct response, their response, which is correct, is, "Well, what's the point?" They look at their savings accounts; they're getting pennies, pennies, and it's like it's a fool's game.
1: And, and I- let's think, let's think about how how strange that observation is. You're you're absolutely right, but just to drive home the point of how strange that is, this worry that people have you and many others, is occurring at exactly the same time that Thomas Piketty has become famous, making exactly the opposite claim, that the capitalists are doing better and better, and you know, the workers are doing worse and worse. So Piketty's claim is that the returns to the savers are too high, and they're worsening wealth inequality in the global economy. So, and that gets back to this um, dichotomy we drew between the safe assets— like treasury bonds that have very low rates of return, or bank accounts, ordinary bank accounts. And these riskier assets, like corporate stocks or real estate, you know, rents are very high, landlords are doing well. And that's a little bit of a mystery, how these things are coexisting. And why aren't the people that are investing in the risky, or the safe assets, why aren't they moving their money into these uh, stocks or real estate investment trusts or things that offer higher rates of return?
0: Well, one answer is it's hard to do when you're 15 years old, yeah. right? So yeah, for my for, son – For it, that
1: example. But you know, there's also a lot of fairly you know, affluent people that have money in accounts that are in relatively low rates of return.
0: Well, let me, let me put myself in that class for a moment uh-huh. uh, and, 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 and restate your question in a different way. Uh, we talked earlier that the stock market's done very well. You pointed out there's no reason – it may not be sustainable. I'm kind of anxious that it's may not be sustainable. I have a lot of my my wealth tied up in the S&P 500 and various assets like it. And but that's probably the biggest one. And I'm not I'm very confident I'm pretty confident that it's not going to continue to look that bright. So I'm thinking, you know, I should take I should reduce the share of my savings that's in the stock market. But of course the question then is and put it in what? Put it in a treasury it, a few percent that I might get eat, might get eaten up by inflation. I can protect it against inflation. There's treasury uh, protected securities, but they don't pay very well right now. Um, it's interesting to me how there's nothing in between is the way I would describe it. There's the risk free, which pays close to zero. It's just a little better than your mattress. Then you have the risky, which is very unclear what it's going to happen. It's not going to likely be a steady. 10% or 8% or 6% up over the next 10 years, it's going to have some wild possible swings. So that to me is what's weird about and unpleasant about the current environment.
1: Yeah, well, I guess all I can tell you is you can obviously you know, spread your risk by doing some of each in some proportion. But, and, and that gives you sort of an intermediate level of risk and an intermediate level of return from one extreme or the other. Um, but getting back to, to Piketty, it, it is interesting that he talks about the return to capital overall as being so high. And, you know, that, that just seems to, uh, it seems strange that we're having both of these conversations at the same time. The well, conversation about capitalists doing so much better than workers, and then this conversation about people that save earning such low rates of return on their savings. Um, obviously, I think you've identified what the, the crux of the problem is, these different types of investments. But um, nevertheless, I do find it kind of interesting. Well, actually,
0: you identified it, and, and you also made the distinguishing point, which I think is very relevant, and other people are starting to notice, this also that a lot of this is being driven by housing. So in the corporate investment world, stocks, bonds, et cetera, there's a lot of risk, and there's been a lot of um, – there's a lot of unpredictability about it going forward, right? Rates—they've been—it's been a great stretch for the last few years, but most people are past, not not so optimistic that that the future is going to be anything close to that that rosy. Similarly, if you bought a house in 1995 in the right place, uh, by 2005, 2007, you made you would have made a huge return. But if you bought it in 2007 or eight, you haven't done so well. It's not mm-hmm. so attractive. And um, I mean, if I could do one thing. To change um, – I don't know how to phrase this. The idea that 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 your house is where you should be parking your wealth to me strikes me as a very bad idea that it, for that idea to be widely held.
1: Yeah, but I, I'd like to point out something else about housing that's kind of interesting. So there's this perception that housing was really overbuilt in the U.S. Um, during the housing boom. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's certainly true in some locations, but the data doesn't really tend to support that. Um, Rents have been rising uh, actually fairly rapidly in in recent decades, so um, faster than uh, people's incomes in many cases, Uh, and people that invest in rental apartments, I think, have done very, very well in recent years. And one of the reasons for that is that um, there's a lot of restrictions on building now, so building since 2008 has been at very, very low levels, and yet the population continues to grow. So um, people are going more and more into rental units. They're having difficulties getting mortgages. And so that part of the real estate sector, uh, rental units is doing very well, and rents are rising. And in, in many of the most prosperous parts of the country, you can actually argue that there's too little housing because of regulations that make it difficult to build. And so that pushes up prices and, and rents in those areas. So again, we have a market that's kind of complex, and I think the the story that people focused on a few years ago was the overbuilding in certain locations, but nationwide, you could argue that we actually aren't building enough housing, and as a result, the costs are going up, which means the returns to landlords in New York City and California and so on are actually very high right now.
0: And, and homeowners, and homeowners generally, right?
1: Yeah, they well, they get an implicit you know rent right. rent on the, the so and they may profit if the price of their home goes up in those areas. Yeah, so, which they, yeah. which
0: they have dramatically uh, <laughs> in in many of them. And I and you raise a great point, which is this the restriction on supply part of this story. It, it depresses me greatly when people say things like, "Oh, you know, we need to we need to build some low income housing in such such a city, or we need to have more opportunities for the middle class to to have comfortable places to live." Well, in New York, in any city, again, take the two places that are that, – I'll take the three that I have some acquaintance with in um, New York, Washington, and, and California. These are three places where it's very expensive to live if you're a young person starting out in your life and you'd like to either own a house or just rent an apartment. And the question is why? Because it wasn't always – people said things like, well, California has great weather. Well, it had great weather in 1962. New York's a great city. It was a great city in 1960. It had some issues, yes. But why is it that as these places have grown in their attractiveness, the mix of housing has, has I suspect, moved greatly toward the high end? And uh, that, I think, is due to regulation, and it's a, it's a terrible – uh, result and it and it capitalism gets blamed for markets. Get blamed for the markets doesn't produce low income housing or middle income, it only produces IN. Well, there's a reason for that. There's a reason that that's so profitable.
1: You have to jump, but well, I think, yeah, uh, I think that a lot of people on the left don't fully realize how much of some of the issues they worry about is actually driven by regulation. One is inequality, um, and uh. I'm working on an article on that topic right now, but also this investment question we were looking at may be part of it as well. I mean, it's just a lot harder to get approval for all sorts of building projects. One is, um, uh, you know, the uh, housing as we've been talking about, but even things that people on the left tend to favor, you know, government projects like high-speed rail, and in Massachusetts they fought endlessly to build a wind farm off the coast. Well, these days, um, these get tied up in the courts forever, and it's very hard to get a project actually built, a major like infrastructure project uh, of that sort. So, um, because of the increasing complexity of regulation and land restrictions, environmental rules, and so on, um, that's it's just harder for us to have the sort of economy we had in the 1960s where we just build highways and housing developments all across the country whenever there was a demand for it in a certain location. And, you know, that there are costs of that. One is there's less investment in the economy. I would argue it worsens inequality in, in a number of ways as well. Um, It's hurting renters right now um, relative to homeowners. So, Uh, But that's something I think people on the left don't fully recognize when they think about the effects of regulation. They don't think about the connection with inequality. Another thing, for instance, is that a regulation often makes it harder for smaller firms. Um, You know, There's sort of a huge amount of uh, fixed cost of complying with all these complex government regulations that come along. And as those regulations get more and more burdensome, they're easier for bigger firms to deal with. And studies show that there's more inequality at large firms than small firms, for instance, so that 's another way in which regulation could be increasing inequality
0: well that 's a nice story and i'm I'm sympathetic to it of course i just don 't know if it 's true, and you have to think about what evidence would allow you to you know i've heard the claim made before, and it 's plausible mm-hmm. that regulations have gotten more complex, more burdensome. but I think the challenge is quantifying that in a way that's that's credible so Here's here's an example. I was mm-hmm. I was just in Israel for uh, two weeks. Israel's uh they're they have security issues of course, but on the domestic side the thing people are most worried about is the price of food and housing. There've been protests in the street. Netanyahu was almost uh lost this last election because of his failure to do anything about it. Uh and he's made lots of pledges he's going to fix it. But the reason that there's uh, a food and housing crisis in Israel is pretty straightforward. There's a lot of barriers to importing food and to creating retailing and food. So yeah. food's really expensive. Um there are cartels, literally, in some uh parts of the food supply that keep the food the price higher and, and, and growing. And that's yeah. uh that's easily fixed if if you wanted to, but politically it may be very difficult. And with housing, uh the government owns a lot of the uh housing, a lot of the land in Israel, and to the extent that it doesn't, it makes it hard to use it privately. So, recently I was talking to a guy who's building a house. He said it's going to take three and a half years. When I told that story to somebody else, they laughed. They said, "Oh, he thinks it's going to take three and a half years." <laughs> now, <laughs> when it takes maybe half a decade to build a house, uh, something it's, you can be pretty confident that rentals are, rental prices to be pretty high in a in a growing economy, which is which is your point. And it, one way to, to quantify that would be to try to see how much longer it takes to build a house in Israel today than, say, 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, I don't know if it's changed. It may have gotten a little bit shorter, but in the face of growing demand, it may be offset by that. And similar in the United States, when we talk about you know, regulation in real estate, which is enormous in major urban areas, I'd like to know – I'd like to see some measures. How long does it take? How many bureaucracies do you have to go through? You know, we're still much better than Israel, but – I'd say we're probably in the ballpark. Not well, maybe it's not the three and a half year thing to build a house, but I assume if you want to start a, a real estate development in New York, it's a major political investment, and as you say, that that rewards high end, uh, large firms. And of course, if you're going to if you're going to have to incur a large fixed cost, you're probably going to tend to build on the higher end. Uh, so I assume that's part of the problem, but it's the story. I'd like to see some evidence.
1: Yeah, there's, there's actually quite a bit of evidence that the cost is large. W- one piece is that in, in places like uh, uh, Los Angeles, if you have, say, a 10,000-square-foot piece of land that is zoned for two units rather than one unit, it's, it's worth vastly more money in the marketplace. And so that that gives you a pretty good estimate of what that particular zoning rule, if it is only zoned for one unit, it it tells you that zoning rule is is costing quite a bit of money in the hundreds of thousands, let's say. Um, Yeah, and uh, by the way, another area where uh, regulation increases inequality is uh, some of the increased copyright protections. So copyright laws have gotten stricter and stricter. Part of this is under lobbying pressure from companies like Disney so they can, you know, protect Mickey Mouse for 100 years. And so, you know, consumers pay more for Mickey Mouse toys and Disney makes more money and that's due to regulation.
0: Yeah, I, I got-
1: that's something people don't think about often when they, you know, using the term regulation, but it is, a, it is an artificial barrier to entry for new firms. Yeah. And I mean, copyright used to be just, I think, 14 years and it's been extended much, much longer with recent legislation.
0: Yeah, I think that's a mistake, but I don't think again that that's it, It's probably hampered somewhat innovation, but again, I see lots of innovation going on. I think the bigger challenge is this issue we're talking about, which is real estate and uh, the the cost of uh, of renting or the return to homeowners who already own homes uh, and their ability to use uh, the political process to protect those investments seems to me to be a really big problem uh, that that mm-hmm. just doesn't get enough attention. I agree. My guest today has been Scott Sumner. Scott, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Thank you, Russ.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening